It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn with Professor Christina Greer elsewhere in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello there. Hey, hey. And Alex <laughs> Brooklyn in Manhattan. Hello. Hello. We're doing sexy voice <laughs> no, today? That was my sleepy <laughs> voice, and I realized oh, okay. it was a touch inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just followed suit. So. Well. <laughs> You're just following my lead? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to spare everyone my sexy voice. Um, Andrew Cuomo, (laughs) speaking of of sexy voices, is trying to capture that Cuomo sexuality again. He just talked for nearly 90 minutes. Um, He said some stuff, but the main point is I'm Andrew Cuomo and I am the voice in the room. And don't you forget it. We're going to come back to that very shortly with uh, our guest, Bill Hammond. But first... There are a couple of cool things happening in New York City this week that Alex is going to fill you in on. And then she's going to uh, punch through some of the news from this week. And we're going to chat about that briefly before getting over to Bill. Okay, so a couple of the cool things we are wanting to promote this week. One, Cheryl Huggins Solomon of McSilver, who also works with City and State, is going to be moderating this awesome panel for Women's Month. Uh, distinguished women in New York. Uh, we've got all the female mayoral candidates there, Maya Wiley, Catherine Garcia, Diana Morales. And um, we'll have a link in the post. It's on March 31st. Uh, so sign up and it should be a good time. Uh, the next thing, this Saturday on March 27th, our own Christina Greer will be having a chat with Tish James, also hosted by McSilver. And then I just wanted to call out the the city and their product team. I don't know who does their product, uh, but some of these things are killing it right now. They have a really amazing mayoral platform guide that you can click on a cool interactive map for who's running for city council where. And I was just very impressed in the news, just to go over it quickly. High school's back this week uh, with an opt-in. So that happened Monday. And I got to say, it really was starting to look like summertime already in Washington Square Park with most high school kids just like seemingly in the park doing wonderful kid things, but still, you know, there and not in school. I got to jump in there for one second just to say it's cool that high school is sort of open again. Um, And this is better than a lot of other cities have done. And this will be its own episode, but this is all sort of bullshit. And this is all sort of a press release in search of a policy. You have crazy high school students who are going to high schools to have classes on Zoom. Uh, open is a uh, is a very generous term for whatever staggering random ass stuff we have nearly at the end of the school year. Hopefully, this is a start toward a full and real opening next year. I will also add that there's now going to be another window to opt back in for the sort of bullshit reopening for the rest of the school year after the mayor swore up and down earlier that you could do that at any point and then said, my bad, you got to decide right now for the entire rest of the year. So again, credit to de Blasio for actually trying where other cities just sort of gave up. But uh, this has been profoundly unimpressive and it's been a lot of big announcements and rollouts and headlines where what's actually happening is much, much less than advertised. Um, well, still on schools, de Blasio announced a plan to extend 
access to 3K to every district in the city by the fall. So that's cool, too. Let's see if that happens. Um, among some of his other announcements was yet another task force for a noble cause, of course, oh. but like is a, a task force on <laughs> racial justice. What are they going to They They're oh. allowed to make suggestions. Again, another task force, no tooth. Like, I don't know if he's trying to solidify a, a right. I don't do them anymore. Task force to nowhere. Like, we are going to task force and committee ourselves into oblivion. And anytime you don't want to get something done, especially when it comes to racial justice and folks that work in academia, folks that work in government, you know, create a task force, a blue ribbon task force, so we can spend a year asking questions about the obvious, coming up with some long report, and then... Once we get the report, we sit on it for X amount of time, and then we need to create a task force to think about what that report told us a while ago and see if the problem exists. I'm over it. It's a cycle to nowhere, and thanks to Blasio. But, you know, you can't not work for two years and then, like, the last few months of your job. It's like, oh, my gosh, let's, like, solve racial inequality real fast. Shout out to the Blasio's task forces that were going to solve segregation in schools and also the inequities in our uh, real estate tax system. Ha ha. And the new public safety matrix that caused so many changes in the NYPD. Well, this quote was very, very telling. And like um, he said, the Racial Justice Commission has the power to put forth permanent transformative ideas. Not changes, but ideas for our government and our city. So this is the Musings Express. (laughs) This is the 2021 Musings Express. This moment (laughs) demands nothing less, Mayor de Blasio says. But it's like nothing less, nothing less than like frou-frou and and nothing solid or no commitment. Anyway, um, moving on, we have, uh, as far as vaccines go, uh, New Yorkers who are 50 and above are now eligible New York's first case of the Brazilian COVID strain has been detected in Brooklyn. Um, COVID rates are rising and plateauing at like a higher rate than we want it to. There's been some great reporting around that. Um, Today, Mayor Bill de Blasio wondered out loud if Cuomo wasn't preemptively pushing some reopening things like gyms and classes or group classes in gyms to, uh, you know, hide some of his political woes. And... You know what, Bill de Blasio, I try and ride with you so hard, but here's the thing. Drive slow, homie. You know that song? Bill de Blasio needs to stay in his own lane and focus on New York City and not throw pot shots at the governor when he is perceived to be down. Bill de Blasio, focus on the next few months as the 109th mayor of New York City. Like, that's what you need to do because you also don't know what is in your back room so keep it keep it easy and breezy and do your job because you have a lot of folks in new york city who aren't happy with you last thing i want to bring up here and then then we'll bring in bill is there has just been more and more of these attacks aimed at asian americans in new york city and this is a really troubling phenomenon that preceded what happened in atlanta and has continued since it's Difficult. There have been a wide variety of attackers. Clearly, not all of this is like Trump people or anything else, but whatever's going on, it's ugly, it's distressing. And it's another thing that de Blasio does not seem to have a solid handle on. At one point, uh, Shirlane McRae, the uh, first lady of New York, uh, said, hey, you know, if you see if you see something happening, you should just intervene. 
in one of these series of statements politicians have been doing recently to suggest without directly saying, like, don't involve the police no matter what. But that's bizarre advice to give if uh, something violent and distressing is actually happening right in front of you, unfortunately. And like the bottom line here is there seems to be a real issue with these attacks, the ones that have been reported and that the NYPD knows about and a bunch of others that they don't as an ongoing thing that involves national fixations and is familiar to lots and lots of other outgroups that, that have experienced this in New York and elsewhere over the years, including, you know, Muslims, Jews, blacks, and on and on. Uh, right now, this this continues to happen. There have been all of these excellent solidarity rallies, especially since Atlanta, but it's something that the city does not seem to have a handle on. And it's distressing to open up the tabloids each day and see one, two, three additional stories about somebody being randomly attacked on a street, uh, on a train, going to a rally with their daughter. And uh, mm-hmm. Well, it also seems like it's something that that candidates don't fully have a grasp on. You know, you've got Andrew Yang right now, Beds. It's like, well, we just need to be better Americans as Asian Americans. Okay, Andrew Yang, we need a better policy than that, right? I think we need a much more substantive understanding of what this, this is like centuries long violence, right? I mean, we've had Chinese exclusion acts. We had Japanese internment camps. We had the Korean War. We had Vietnam. There are ways that this country has always been anti-Asian and viewed Asian Americans as forever foreigner. As political scientists, we've got reams of literature, uh, AAPI literature on this from top-notch scholars and mentors of mine who have written about this. But it seems as though a lot of the candidates don't have a full grasp on what this really looks like and how the NYPD can actually assist in some way because they seem to not understand any sort of racial dynamics in this city other than, you know, crack and skulls. So I think that needs to be something that we really push the candidates on much more, especially because this idea of the model minority won't save anyone. It's actually really dangerous and detrimental to all communities. So not just Asian American communities. And I think that's the piece that I was trying to get to when we had a certain guest on that if you if you think that the model minority status of being Asian American will save you, it is not. It is falling into a white supremacy trap, and you need to reject it. It's harmful for Asian Americans. It's harmful for Black people. It's harmful for Latinx communities, and it's harmful for white people who believe that. So, that's my soapbox for for today. In fairness to Yang, who is that certain guest, that op-ed was written last year or 2019. So so two years ago now, and th- that's it was no written good. in 2020 from Washington Post. In fairness to and Yang. And he's backed away from mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. right? That, 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 that was but written in 2020, it. and he, he has backed <laughs> away from it. it. You said it. You wrote it. You published it. And this was after yep. some other anti-Asian American violence. And you said, at, this is coronavirus, right? Mm-hmm. This is in response to the, the rise of Asian American violence during the coronavirus. And you said the best way to do this was to just be more American, to wear red, white, and blue, to be nicer, to speak English, to vote, to essentially try and make white people like you, to try and make white supremacists like you, which is, I don't understand how in 2020, anyone who's grown could actually think that. But to think that in a city as diverse as New York City, in a nation as diverse as the United States, that antiquated model of, I just need to be a better model minority and then maybe white nationalists will think that I'm worthy of being in the country that is mine? Like, what kind of thought process is that? So the fact that you you thought it, you wrote it, <laughs> you published it, you stood by it, and it wasn't until other Asian Americans were like, hey, dude, what are you saying? That is actually really harmful to us to perpetuate this nonsensical model minority stereotype. 
So make decisions based on what you need to make decisions on. But I think that that is that level of lack of awareness as to how you fit into a larger white nationalist conversation is pretty dangerous if you want to lead a city. Speaking of lack of awareness, he uh, just got pretty buddy-buddy with the naked cowboy who was at the Capitol riots and was it's like a very clear big MAGA supporter, Trump supporter, and uh, MAGA guy. And um, it wasn't until like Jeff Cotland, an- another FAQ guest from City and State, who was like, yo, you know, that guy, he was at the Capitol riots. And Yang was like, oh, damn, really? Oh, man, I didn't know that. I didn't know. But I mean, here's the thing. Here's why I have so much ire, Right. I know it's not the episode, but here's why I have so much ire. You can't keep playing footsie with white supremacists and keep saying, oh, I didn't know. Every time Andrew Yang gets called out about this, he's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. It's like, what you don't know could fill an aquarium. However, these are the the same people that you're courting to be your supporters and to be your friends and to accept you are the same people who rolled out in Atlanta and killed Asian Americans. So, like, you can't have it both ways, Andrew Yang. Either you say, I want to be with the MAGA crowd and I want them to accept me and love me and I'll say and do anything to get their vote, or you actually take a stand and think about what it means to be Asian American in this country and think about what those people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th really meant. Not just for Black and Latinx folks, but for your people too. For you, right? That guillotine was for you, homie. Not just for Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence and Negroes and Latinos, right? That, all these conversations these past four years are for Andrew Yang's people as well. And the fact that he wants to keep sort of flirting with them for their support is driving me slowly insane because he refuses to understand the danger that he presents. And every time someone calls it on it, he hides behind the, oh, I didn't know. It's like, then stop talking until you know. Stop talking until you educate yourself about the words that you use and how detrimental they are to people of color, including Asian Americans and including yourself. So the case Ron Kim made for Andrew Yang on this show last week, and I think carefully considering his words there, was that it's really important to have some level of Asian representation in New York and in these conversations and that, that Andrew Yang is learning. I don't know because it's a very short period <laughs> but of we time. Get to, we have to sit here, Harry, while he learns. It's a very right? short period I mean, of time to learn for the biggest job in the city. I, I have very significant doubts. I mean, that but, that gets back to the, all of the different arguments about the nuances of is representation alone what is needed? Is there merit in representation alone without the proper policy? Um, so well, we call is- it descriptive and substantive representation in political science, right? This is why I teach my students all the time. Do you want somebody descriptively who looks like you or substantively who represents your, your needs and interests? And sometimes you get both, right? Like white men have oftentimes gotten both. But it's like, I'd much rather an old white man than, say, a Clarence Thomas, right, on the Supreme Court. Like, I'd much rather someone who's progressive, who has my values, than someone who looks like me in the form of a Clarence Thomas, right? So that's one of the questions. So I definitely think that we need much more Asian American representation, right? I think John Liu running for mayor in 2013 was huge. I think it meant something. I think it still means something. John Liu paves the way for Andrew Yang, Point blank, right? And so descriptively, that's incredibly important. But substantively, I will take someone who looks nothing like me if they actually represent my values. And so this is a question that I think a lot of the candidates need to ask themselves, but Andrew Yang in particularly. It's like, 
So descriptively, you mean a lot. But substantively, what are you saying and for whom? Because if you're going to set Asian Americans back politically, and if you're going to try and replicate policies and support people that actually are damaging to Asian Americans, then you need to get out of the way. You need to sit down and leave immediately because you're dangerous. So John Liu was asked about... uh was asked about Andrew Yang's outreach to Asian communities and uh, said, I'm going to limit my comments to things I will positively say about specific candidates. So, oh my. <laughs> Sh- shout out to John Liu, the very first, Liu. The very first <laughs> FAQ NYC guest, which brings us to the very, not last, but most recent FAQ guest. In fact, he hasn't even been a guest yet, but he's going to become one right now. Bill Hammond, here to talk about Andrew Cuomo. So it's Wednesday afternoon. We've just had the uh, mellifluous, soothing tones of Andrew Cuomo fireside chatting at New Yorkers once again for uh, nearly 90 minutes. And joining us right now is Bill Hammond of the Empire Center. Uh, hey, Bill, it's nice to see you. Hey, Harry. Good to see you. And I, I think our listeners know, at least in the broad strokes from this pod and elsewhere, what's been happening with nursing homes, the death count related to nursing homes, and all that. But you were really central in finally getting the state to put out most of the information it had. And I was hoping you could start by just taking taking listeners through what led you to lock in on that, why the state was withholding that information for months and months, and why all that is consequential. Okay, so um, I was aware that there was something funny going on with nursing homes, you know, going way back to April, May, you know, it was coming up during the briefings. Reporters were asking about the March 25th memo about admitting positive patients. And they were also asking about the way he was counting deaths in the nursing homes. Um, but, I mean, it was March and April, and there were a gazillion things going on that seemed like they were higher priorities. But it persisted, and the state was being very evasive about on this topic and it kind of, as time went on, it became clear that they were hiding something. And I kept thinking, well, at some point they're going to have to come clean. But finally, uh, what, what, what was kind of the last straw for me was there was a legislative hearing and Commissioner Zucker was called to testify. And one of the very first questions was, you know, can you tell us what the full death count is in nursing homes and, and why are you why haven't you been reporting that up till now? And Commissioner Zucker was extremely evasive. He he didn't give them the answer they were looking for and he didn't have a good reason why. And so at that point I I filed a freedom of information request. I wasn't the first one to do so, I wasn't the only one to do so. Um I didn't know how useful it would be because these things take a long time. And I thought by the time I got the information, it would probably already be public anyway. He's, he's going to put this out soon. He can't keep it secret forever. But as it turns out, he kept it secret and he postponed our request in a way that we thought was invalid. So we appealed that 
And then once they rejected that appeal, we felt we had grounds for a lawsuit. We filed a lawsuit. That was an advantage I had over almost everybody else who who was seeking this information and is that I had access to a lawyer. The, the Government Justice Center was representing us. And both the Government Justice Center and the Empire Center have a mission of of transparency. So we were willing to put some money behind it. So that lawsuit was filed in September. And it took several more months before we got our court ruling. And amazingly enough, the governor at no point around the election, around the holidays, around the January 6th insurrection, all of these things would have been opportunities for him to slip out the facts relatively unnoticed and prevent uh, a humiliating defeat in court. But instead of doing that, he waited until the judge in our case finally ran out of patience and went public with an order declaring the health department to be in violation of the freedom of information law, ordering them to release the data we had wanted within five business days and slapping them with a court, you know, making them pay our court fees as a, as a kind of a punishment for having violated the rules that happened in February and that was right after Tish James had put out her turned out to be pretty good guesstimate report, finally putting some hard number on, on some number to start with in, in that conversation where there'd just been a blank that had stayed blank, I think, for long enough for Cuomo to win an Emmy and have a uh, <laughs> best selling book about defeating the virus, right? Well, yeah, her report came out on January 28th. One of the remarkable things about that report is that she, not even she had been able to get her hands on the health department data. She's the independently elected attorney general of the state. She was doing a report at the behest of, of the governor, and yet somehow she wasn't afforded access to this state data that belonged to the public. You know, when I think about all the stuff that happened, you just mentioned the Emmy. He also wrote a book. But you know what else happened during the period that he was hiding this information? We had an election. We elected a new president. We elected a new Congress and we elected a new state legislature. And potentially, had he been more honest, the state's handling of nursing homes might have been an issue in some of those elections. Um, another thing that happened is we had a second wave in the nursing homes. It started in, um, in November and it continued through January into February. I think it's pretty much abated now because of vaccinations. But the idea that you would downplay a crisis in nursing homes and continue downplaying it through a second wave, it really strikes me as a, as a pretty outrageous thing to do and a disservice to the public and the public health. So, so Bill, what do you say? And first of all, thanks for joining us on FAQ NYC. I can't believe it's my first pleasure. Time you've been here. Um, so, what do you say to folks who are defending Cuomo, saying, "Well, listen." You know, when all this started, there's a lot of confusion. We're quickly forgetting how much of a maniac Donald Trump was, and he was pitting states against one another. And essentially Cuomo's argument of the president was so erratic and irrational and doling out money based on how we felt personally, we couldn't show the reality because that would have put New York State in danger. And so me not exposing the full truth was actually helping the state in the long run based on what was going on in Washington, D.C. What do you say to that? Arthur? You know, uh, that's that's a rationale I had not heard before. <laughs> he's he's oh, offered, that's the rationale that's coming through my timeline quite a bit. 
He's offered a lot of rationales for what he did. Uh, I haven't heard him offer that one. I mean, it did occur to me that he might be thinking, for better or worse, I have become the Democrats' um, leader on this pandemic. And so to the extent I'm embarrassed, it might hurt the Democratic cause in the November election. The thing is that rationale went away on November 6th or November 3rd, Mm. whatever it was. Um, And his stonewalling continued even after the president, the new president was inaugurated. So I don't, I don't buy it. I don't Mm. think, I don't think he had any kind of benign rationale and if he, if that's what he wants to say, I mean that that I guess that is a variation on what Melissa DeRosa said, but the way she phrased it made it seem like their stonewalling started when the president got involved. Their stonewalling started in April and May, mm. and the mm-hmm. president hadn't even woken up to that at the at the time, <laughs> right. and. I, I mean, when I was just reflecting before this call on all of the things that they did to deceive us about the, the reality in the nursing homes, it started with changing the way they reported deaths to leave out about a third of deaths that happened in hospitals. It continued with rewriting a report that came out of the health department to change the numbers in that report from what the health department had put in there. It continued with not answering questions from the legislature. Um, It continued with his constant statements that New York has the best record of almost any state on nursing homes, which was based on false statistics. And those false statistics ended up, just just in this timeline, right, those ended up in his book. And he knew they were false because he could see the health department numbers. No, he, I mean... All of this was knowing and deliberate, and it didn't stop until a court ordered him to stop. Even once that happened, he has said misleading things about what he did when he was deceiving us. And he said misleading things about why he did what he did and what the impact of it was. He has not stopped being misleading on this issue and it's complicated enough that he can get away with that with with some large share of the public, which I think is why he still has a certain level of public approval in, in the polls. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, he's still at 50 percent roughly. And in, with African-Americans, he's even higher than that. I think, Bill, can you talk to me about prison populations? Because I think when this story broke about nursing homes, my heart sank largely because I realized if they would cook the books on, you know, grandma and grandpa and, you know, someone's, you know, Bubba, like, what would they do to marginalized groups of incarcerated citizens that, you know, many New Yorkers aren't thinking about in a time of crisis when they're trying to just survive themselves? And so has anyone started looking into... New York state level data in our incarcerated citizens, like whether or not they've been properly quarantined or the deaths that we've seen in uh, various prisons across the state. Because if they would be so brazen to do this with nursing homes, I shudder to think what they would do with prisons. No, I mean, that's 
that is absolutely one of the implications of the scandal is that his credibility is trashed all like across the board and not just his credibility. The, the commissioner of the health department was parroting all of the talking points throughout this period. The, the person who is now the chancellor of the SUNY system was involved in the cover-up. The woman who is head of the, the superintendent of the department of financial services was involved in the cover-up, the budget director, like everybody around him was part of this and includes some of the highest ranking officials in state government. And so, yes, I think it does at least raises questions about the validity of their data all over the place. Now, I, I will say I haven't looked as closely at the situation in prisons. I know that there was just recently a report that said um, group homes for the disabled had a mm. similar policy I don't know if it would be exactly the same because they don't take admissions the way a nursing home does, but they had a similar uh, situation in group homes where there was a, what appears to be a higher infection and death rate in those homes than there was in the population at large. And it's another situation where the state had an obligation to protect those people just because of the nature of who they were and the fact that they were living in state-financed facilities. And the dispiriting thing is that this nursing home situation, as significant as it was, it's one slice of a big picture. And in order to understand it, we had to litigate for months to get that one data set about one population. The state should be in the middle right now of a thorough investigation, review, whatever you want to call it, of the whole pandemic and all of its facets, what happened in nursing homes, what happened in prisons, what happened in group homes, what happened to the general population, why it got so out of control. And in order to do that, you need complete access to all of the data, not just the, the little pieces of it that you can squeeze out of them with litigation. So Cuomo today was taking a very different tone. He was talking about renewal and revival and spring is here. And, and hoping in the way that politicians will, that, that with vaccines and so on, the worst of it is done. Go, going back to what he did with this one slice of, of significant data, we've talked about this before. My, my theory always with politicians, my, my, my Occam's razor is just force of habit, that, that, that Cuomo is in the habit of uh, tightly controlling data, of not wanting to share, of dominating message. And once you start, it's hard to stop. But one other thing in that timeline which actually goes back to hiding information is Florida, which for all of its many other problems actually has wonderful freedom of information laws that make uh, politicians there go, go a little crazy. New York could use. When he starts putting these numbers down, it's after New York has been hit harder at that point, much harder than anywhere else in the country. And it's not clear what's going to happen. And I suspect the one reason that, that the New York governor might want to keep those specific numbers out of view and the essence of Cuomo's defense when they finally came out, I think, was you always knew how many people died in total. What does it matter where they died? Um, I suspect part of that may have been concern about how this was going to compare with other states and, and with the, the unknown question of how that was going to play out. So the, this governor who we learned from The Times, I think, last week, 
you know, was actually monitoring other governors' ratings <laughs> uh, and had staffers doing that. Um, uh, that I suspect that may have been part of his uh, part of his math there. Um, well, going going back to your point before about we've told you how many people died. What does it matter where they died? I mean, first of all, I don't think they have given us the best count of deaths statewide because they're they're focused on people who die in institutions primarily. New York City has a very different methodology where they sort of systematically go through death certificates. And New York City's numbers are consistently significantly higher than the state reports for New York City. And there's no other than New York City, the rest of the state, there is no count other than the one that the state's generating, which which is probably on the low side. But that aside, the question about what does it matter where they died as opposed to, you know, how many died? And the answer is the same reason we, we cared whether, like, the pandemic was much worse in New York City and much worse in Nassau County, much worse in Westchester than it was in other parts of the state. How do we know that? Because we knew where they died. We knew where they lived when they died. And in the case of nursing homes, where you lived when you got sick is super relevant because the people who live in nursing homes aren't going to restaurants. They're not going to movies. They're not violating social distancing rules. They're living their entire lives in what should be a bubble of protection. And if that breaks down, these are facilities that are regulated by the state. They're largely financed by the state. It's a state responsibility when those facilities drop the ball. Now, when I say drop the ball, they were under very difficult situation. Even the best nursing homes in the world uh, had trouble keeping the infection out. So it's not like it's not like every last person who got sick and died in a nursing home was some kind of failure on Cuomo's part. But when it got as bad as it got, it was super relevant to know exactly how bad it was. And even if you give him the benefit of the doubt about his original policy choices in the heat of what was a really difficult crisis, the part that came after, the part where he was lying about the numbers, there's really no, I don't see any valid excuse for that. Even even politically, um, I think it was a huge mistake and it was a violation of the public trust. Just one more question for you here, I think to, to maybe close part of that thread. Given this violation, like what are the uh, remaining shoes to drop? And I'm looking both at the legislature about to send, it looks like, uh, a bill that's already passed in one house and is expected to pass in the other, illuminating the immunity that uh, Cuomo provided to nursing homes and hospitals and that, that Ron Kim and others have speculated was um, sort of the underlying cause of a lot of this. And uh, also this federal investigation that we don't know so much about uh, that appears to be ongoing re- related to what numbers were or weren't shared with the uh, previous administration. Uh, are, are there other shoes to drop here or politically is he close to out, out of the woods, however bad this is? Uh, I, I don't think he's out of the woods at all. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more to come out. Given how bad what we've learned so far has been, the cover-up was so extensive and so long-lasting, it seems disproportionate to what was being covered up, which makes me wonder if there's something else we don't know. 
One really important area of the federal investigation is what did he say? What, when the Department of Justice asked him for data, what data did he give them and was it accurate? I have to say, it would be colossally stupid if the DOJ asks you for numbers to give them wrong numbers. But, you know, we need to see those numbers. And that would be, it seems to me that would be a pretty clear-cut potential crime if you if you you know, falsified numbers that you provided to the DOJ. Uh, another area that, like, we we still don't know the details of his book deal. There's some indication that maybe he had that in mind when he was working so diligently to minimize what happened in nursing homes that he was he was in the throes of negotiating a book deal that may be very lucrative. And that I don't know that, how easy it would be to, to build a criminal charge out of that, but that's that's a shoe that hasn't dropped yet, is how much did he make on the book. Um, there, there may be details of his interactions with the Greater New York Hospital Association. It was their idea both to grant immunity to healthcare providers and to require nursing homes to accept the positive patients. Those both started with Greater New York, which is – a huge donor to the governor and is a very influential lobbying force in his administration. Um, uh, so that's, I mean, there's probably more to come out about that. So, so Bill, I mean, I know you're not a democratic strategist, but <laughs> what is the path out of this for Cuomo? Because it seems as though, You've got commissioners that could be implicated. You've got full departments that could be implicated. You've got external lobbying entities that can be implicated. We know that this is the time that he's been, he was palling around on CNN every night with his brother and, you know, sort of creating like the Cuomo Brothers show. And also, as you said, this lucrative book deal that I've been apoplectic about ever since it hit the shelves and we're still in the midst of a global pandemic. So how does leaving the sexual assault charges out of this, <laughs> leaving all the misconduct when it comes to female staffers and employees. Let's just leave that off the table completely. What's the what's the best case scenario for Cuomo with just the nursing home scandal? You know, I actually have a just so crazy it might work kind of an idea that okay. there's an op-ed that's, that's out there waiting to be published that sort of makes this it doesn't make this case in a political way, but it makes the case for doing what I'm about to suggest. And that is that the governor should go full transparency. He should tell the health department, forget everything that I've been making you do for the past 12 years or whatever it is. Put every last scrap of pandemic-related data you have on the internet as soon as you possibly can. Prison data, nursing home data, hospital data, everything we know, every number that we've gathered, take out the names and the identifying information and put it on the Internet and invite the world to go nuts. Invite the epidemiologists and the FBI and people like me and the media to plow through it and find whatever they're going to find. I think that would change the subject so dramatically in Albany and in the media and in the country. And like his legacy would, it would sort of add to his legacy. In addition to being the guy 
who covered up the pandemic. He was also the one who engaged in this experiment in radical transparency. And the thing is, the data that New York has is actually valuable to the world of science. We were we were the epicenter of the pandemic for a few really horrible weeks in March and April. The world's pandemic was concentrated in New York. We may have been one of the sources of the whole country's pandemic. And understanding why it got so bad so quickly is actually valuable information for scientists to have. And also, like, it's the state and the country and the city need to repair their public health systems. And this this is the kind of information that would help them do that if they could get insights into where things went wrong. So that, I mean, I, again, it's so crazy, just my work, because it would run completely 180 degrees in the opposite direction of Cuomo's instincts. Um, and and in mm. fact, since having that idea, I've been watching for signs that the governor might be going in that direction. And of course, he's going in the opposite direction. He's 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 pretending that the whole thing never happened. He's um, he's making nice with the legislature. He's he's letting restaurants reopen. He's letting people go to baseball games. He's he's not engaging with. The, the crisis, the, the the absolute catastrophe that hit the state last year on his watch. Is he right that we are lower now than we were before the holiday surge, as he said today? Well, it depends on exactly when you time the holiday surge. In his charts that he's using in his um, briefings, he starts it on Christmas Day, which, of course, is ridiculous. The holidays start at Thanksgiving or earlier. Our numbers now are higher than they were on Thanksgiving across the board. They're also probably higher than they were a week after Thanksgiving. We have some of the worst numbers in the country in terms of infections and hospitalizations. Our death rate is, in, is, is more average for the rest of the country. We're not in great shape. I, I still think we're on the brink of a much better period because of the, vi- the vaccines. Like the, Those are eventually going to take hold in a way that just quells the virus. At least that's what I hope. But our numbers right now are something like 10 times worse than they were in August and July. We had it really well under control last summer. We did not reopen as much as we are reopened now when our numbers are much worse than they were back then. And Cuomo was talking today about a uh, crackdown on for-profit nursing homes. How did they do as compared to other nursing homes so far over the pandemic from the numbers we know? So I want to start by saying I think there is some cause for concern about the fact that the nursing home industry is so quickly converted from being predominantly not-for-profit to being predominantly for-profit in just a space of about, I think, a decade. It's been a very very rapid transformation, and and it's something that – deserve some scrutiny. There are certain certain ways of operating that some of the for-profit homes do that I don't think is desirable. And there's also a pattern. They tend to get lower quality scores for whatever that's worth than not-for-profit homes. That said, if you look at the mortality, specifically the coronavirus mortality rates in the New York City area, for-profit homes as a group did a little bit better than not-for-profit homes. I know that's going to surprise people. Upstate, it's the other way around. The for-profit homes did worse than the not-for-profit homes. 
the group of homes that had the worst track record of any subgroup were state-owned facilities. It just so happens that the state owns a, a half dozen veterans' homes, and they had some really high death rates. And so I don't think you can link profit motive and poor performance during the pandemic that easily. There may be an interplay there. I think it's simplistic. And it's also, it's a little convenient because there there is a, a sentiment in the legislature that profit doesn't belong in healthcare. I'm not sure exactly how you would ever remove it, but I just think that if you look at the actual data from the pandemic, it's more complicated than that. There's stuff that went on that affected not-for-profit and government-run homes the same way it affected for-profit homes. And so if, you're, if your goal is to, is to really address the root problems that, that allowed so many people to die and all you're focusing on is the ownership structure, I think you're going to miss the point. Bill, here's our big closing question here, if you take a step back. We'll start off in tight and narrow. Cuomo stopped doing televised press conferences in the course of having eight women accuse him of different forms, so far eight, of harassment. He did that so that there wouldn't be any video footage of his face to go along with his answers. He did a series of last-minute conference calls with reporters announced like 20 minutes beforehand where they could be cut off before asking follow-ups. Today, he was back on video uh, doing a big health briefing, pouring out all sorts of information, and also doing his fireside chat thing, where notably, he's no longer talking about his daughters <laughs> and their love lives, uh, which, which is good, particularly because he was, he was evidently kicking it to women who were on his staff and his daughter's ages, and were telling him that to get him to back off. But he was doing the fireside chat thing. He said, information and knowledge, PowerPoint style, he said, reduces anxiety and increases control. And I thought back to last year at about this time when Cuomo's go-to line was the fear and panic is, if anything, worse than the virus. And of course, that narrative changed. But what I'm seeing now is he wants to sell this. It's spring. It's renewal. We're about through. As these scandals kept dropping on the harassment front, which he's now said he won't answer questions about and exhausted the press's attempts to ask, he kept, you know, sort of reopening things. Almost, it seemed like, in response, hey, more, more indoor dining in New York, uh, movie theaters are back, you can go to sporting events. So I don't think he's learned very much, but you've thought about this and tracked all this closely. And my question is, as he's talking about what we need to learn for the next pandemic and the next pandemic being inevitable, what is it that New York State and potentially a future governor should learn so that we would be better prepared and better braced. You've mentioned transparency already, radical transparency, and that that seems awesome and overdue to me. But past that, what lessons can we take from this so that we are in a better position next time? And, And what can other players in the existing Albany, like the legislature, do to help get us there potentially? So, um, as, mu- as much attention as I've put onto the March 25th order and the implications of that and the nursing home data and everything, I mean, it's, it's become a big focus of my professional life. I remain convinced that it was, there was actually one of probably, you know, hundreds of mistakes that were made and not even necessarily one of the worst ones. Um, I think where everybody should be focused is on what happened not in March, 
but in February and January. Because that was the moment when if we had if we had responded in the right way, we could have prevented the virus from from spreading as much as it did. Uh, it may not have been possible in the final analysis to completely prevent the pandemic, but we could have contained it. If nothing else, simply awareness of the facts of the virus and the need for speed and the need for what what epidemiologists call non-pharmaceutical interventions, which I guess is another word for lockdowns. If if the state had been in that mindset of we're going to have to lock down, when do we do it? Instead of resisting the whole idea of lockdown for as long as everybody did. That's the period. And I think if you if you put a side by side with the country, I keep referring to South Korea because they had a very successful pandemic response. They had suffered a bad pandemic. I believe it was MERS. It was one of the one of the previous viruses. And they resolved not to let it happen again. And so when this virus popped up, they were ready. They they recognized the threat and they had people who were motivated to spring into action and get things done and take the steps that were needed to be taken. And I, I, they must have also had some awareness in the public that this, this was going on and it was going to need to happen and, and they had buy-in. We didn't have any of those things in New York. And those things needed to be happening in January and February as soon as the, as soon as the world learned about the virus. Now, Bill, is that a touch of Monday morning quarterbacking? Just because, I mean, like some of us were paying attention. I was following Italy and their lockdowns. But, I mean, we also had, you know, Bill de Blasio telling people to go out and have that last drink before they shut down restaurants. You know, like, but that's exactly that's exactly what should not have been happening. Yeah. They should not have been saying things like fear is more dangerous than the virus. (laughs) It was wrong. And I think the governors tried to justify that by saying, well, I didn't want to panic people. He needed to panic people. People needed Mm. to be panicked because when they got panicked, they stopped going to restaurants on their own. Even before the shutdown happened, the restaurants emptied out. The NBA canceled its games, not because the government told them to, because they recognized the gravity of the situation. The the people needed to be let in on that. And they weren't. Mm. They were being told just the opposite. They were being told, go out and celebrate. Lead, lead your lives as normal. It was a huge mistake. Uh, and, and that was compounding the mistakes they made earlier, which, which would have been out of view of the public. Um, mistakes related to the quality of the testing, which, of course, it, you know, the, the, that started with the CDC. Uh-huh. But also, you know, Arguably, they should have had restrictions at the airports. Arguably, they should have been telling people to wear masks earlier than they did. They could have been encouraging people to work from home earlier than they did. Um, It would have been extraordinary. It's possible the public would have resisted or or revolted. Or the business community. (laughs) If 
thinking about the next pandemic, I think the public will be ready. They will they will understand the need for that kind of intervention. The, the legislature so far is focused on kind of downstream stuff like, you know, do hospitals have enough capacity? Do nursing homes have enough PPE? And those are those are worth thinking about. But I'd like to see more focus on the upstream parts of it. Mm. Last thing here from me, so, something that really grabbed me. Cuomo talked about a few times intelligently as he was uh, philosophizing and chewing camera time is that the state doesn't actually have that much control over a lot of this that people are going to act in the ways they are. And if you're not actually going to put police on the streets to check if people are allowed to be outside like you had in Paris and otherwise, that a ton of this is fundamentally consensual and that the government's role is to persuade. There are certain things that the government can't force people to do, but there are certain things it can it can inform people. And so denying them data is a big big mistake. And being caught lying is another big mistake. But there are certain things that the government unquestionably can do. If the government tells restaurants that they can't have people in their in their establishment, so they're going to lose their licenses, the restaurants, by and large, are going to comply with that. You know, you're going to have violations around the edges, but by and large, the restaurants are going to comply. If it tells large employers they they shouldn't open their offices on a given day those large employers are going to not open their offices so there are certainly certainly mechanisms that the government has um, that it can use and that make a big difference bill thanks a lot for taking the time and joining us thank you bill well, it's a pleasure and good to see your face and uh come back on please as uh, as all this continues to unfold I'll be glad to. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests this week, Bill Hammond, a senior fellow for health policy at the Empire Center. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be good, and we'll see you next week. I can't stand that man. I swear to God, he makes my blood boil. Cuomo or Ying? Right. <laughs> <laughs>